From Indiana to Utah, Alaska to Arkansas, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, are the top 1% of wage earners actually taking a larger share of the nation's wealth? We get the answer from E.J. Antoni of the Heritage Foundation. Congress kicked the budget can down the road. Well, now we're down the road and new federal budget deadlines loom. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Since the start of the NFL football season, the national debt has grown by $1 trillion. And before March Madness takes the floor, it will grow by another trillion. Eric Bame of Reason Magazine is here to discuss the impact. And Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court by Ronald Reagan, but he was dismayed by her rulings on abortion. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has this week's American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Messaging from the left would have you believe that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. But a look back at statistics over the last half century proves otherwise. E.J. Antoni is a public finance economist with the Heritage Foundation and a senior fellow at the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. He joins us now with the numbers. E.J., welcome back to American Radio Journal. E.J., the left has made a big point out of saying that the top 1% of wage earners in the country are, are very greedy, and they are taking an ever larger share of the overall national wealth. As you look at the numbers, is that really the case? No, not not at all. In, in fact, it's just the opposite. And what, what we've seen is basically for uh, half a century now, the amount of money that the wealthy actually take home after taxes is the same share of the economy that it was, again, 50-something years ago. As we look at that, if it's been the same for 50-some years, why is it then that the left is trying to gin up this sort of class warfare? Well, I suppose because it's it's politically profitable for politicians to do so. You know, it, it's always very attractive for us as humans to have someone else we can blame uh, for any of our failures, for any of our mistakes, because then it alleviates the burden on our own conscience that something that happens to us may have in some way been our fault. So, for example, I don't have to say that my lack of success is due to a lack of effort on my part. I can just simply point to a boogeyman and say that it's his fault, and he is he is in the wrong. And now, not only that, but he owes me something in return. You have looked at these wealth statistics, as you pointed out, going back to 1960 here, EJ. We have, in the intervening years, particularly in the uh, mid to later 60s, had the war on poverty that the Johnson administration undertook. Of course, we've had all manner of social welfare programs implemented and some repealed and some re-implemented over the decades. Why is it, do you think, that despite all that effort, we're still pretty much where we were a half a century ago? I think the short answer there is because all of those programs don't work. They don't do what they advertise themselves as doing. For example, if you tax something, you get less of it. If you subsidize something, you get more of it. Well, what happens when you subsidize things like single motherhood? Don't be surprised when you get more single motherhood. 
you know, what happens when you tax married couples, which is what we do in the current tax code, because there are marriage penalties built in. In other words, when two people get married and combine their incomes, they actually face a higher tax burden. What happens? Well, don't be surprised if you get lower marriage rates. And what, what goes hand in hand with that? Lower birth rates. It seems that there is always an effort to approach these social problems from an economic point of view. EJ, is it really possible for economics to resolve the social ills that we see in the country? No, it's really not possible. You know, and, and there's a whole different, uh, a whole host of examples that we can point to for this. But when when you see people rioting and looting a Footlocker, for example. You know, there is no reason to believe that giving those people a welfare check is somehow going to instill in them the moral rectitude that says stealing is wrong. We are not talking about the Great Depression here, where people were stealing loaves of bread to feed themselves and their children. People are stealing luxury goods uh, out of out of storefront windows. That points to moral decay, not some kind of economic inequality. So we're seeing that these social problems are not being resolved by big government spending programs. So what is the answer? Is there anything that government can do or something that government's doing that it shouldn't do that would help lift more people out of poverty? Well, there's nothing really that the government can do directly. There's a lot they can do indirectly, and that involves simply getting out of the way and, and stopping the problems that are incentivizing this kind of, of bad behavior. You know, these crazy district attorneys, for example, who refuse to prosecute people for crimes. Going back to what we said earlier, what, what happens if you don't penalize crime? Well, don't be surprised if you get more crime. And that's what we've seen in, in so many of these radically left-wing cities. But if the government would stop doing things like subsidizing bad behavior, which they do through all kinds of welfare programs, then what would happen? We would get less of that bad behavior. People would be less dependent on the state, and they'd be more dependent on their families. That is a very strong incentive to have a strong family structure. Families, of course, here, EJ, have suffered greatly over the last couple of years with the out-of-control inflation that we've experienced. Those inflation numbers appear to be coming down. Have we turned a corner? And even though we've turned a corner, are we actually seeing prices come down at all? No, we're not seeing prices come down. I mean, you may find a price here and there, which is coming down, certainly not all the way down to, to where it was in January of 2021. But you may have seen certain prices like gasoline, for example, that have come down uh, from the peak that they reached last year or maybe even the year before that, 2022. But what, again, what you're not seeing is prices going back to anywhere near what we would consider normal levels. And more importantly, where prices are today are still up so much that they have far outpaced the growth in people's earnings. In other words, yes, your income has gone up 10, 15% for some people, and that's wonderful. But when prices are up 17, 20% or more in many places, guess what? That's not so wonderful at all. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. You have effectively lost money. Your bigger paycheck buys you less. A companion to that has been the Federal Reserve raising interest rates steadily over the last couple of years in order to curb inflation seems to be having somewhat of the desired effect. But as we look at the interest rate structure that we have now here, EJ, and we look at the year ahead, are the tea leaves saying that maybe the increases have come to an end and perhaps we might even see some rate cuts in the coming year? 
that certainly seems to be the news coming out of the Federal Reserve. Uh, unfortunately, what we're going to do is we're going to set ourselves up uh, to repeat the mistakes of the 1970s, where when the Fed was nearing success and really killing inflation, it decided to backtrack and let the beast back out of its cage. So while the Fed is talking about rate cuts this year, that will have the effect of, of temporarily boosting the economy, at least as far as appearances go. But come 2025 and beyond, we're going to be right back on that inflation bandwagon. We have been talking with E.J. Antoni, who is a public finance economist with the Heritage Foundation. He's also a senior fellow at the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. E.J., can you give us a little bit of background information on Heritage? Also, you have an op-ed at the Fox News website this past week, and I assume there's also a Heritage website where folks can go to learn more. The Heritage Foundation exists to, to help the American people and American lawmakers understand the public policy issues of our times. You can find more about us at, at the website, heritage.org. You can find all of my info, the articles I publish, and all the data reviews that, that I monitor and, and opine upon on X. And the handle there is at Real EJ Antoni. EJ Antoni of the Heritage Foundation. EJ, thank you for being back with us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Happy New Year to you. And to you. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. It's a whole new year, but we have some leftover business from 2023. We're going to talk about that with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, as always, good to have you with us. Happy New Year, Loman. Well, Happy New Year to you and your family and everybody involved. It is certainly going to be an interesting year. We're looking forward to talking about all the developments with you as the year unfolds. But first of all, we have a situation relative to the federal budget, which will remind our listeners should have been approved by October 1st. It still isn't. Tell us how we got to where we are and why the next couple of weeks we're going to start hitting some really important deadlines. Well, I think everybody remembers last year when you had the big debt limit fight, you had this big promise from Kevin McCarthy that the House of Representatives was going to return to regular order and pass all their appropriation bills. We had the fight in September, and we began to pass some of the bills, but it was really, really difficult with a slim House Republican majority to really get any of those bills through. And of course, the Senate didn't do much on its end. There was this big negotiation on the so-called Fiscal Responsibility Act, which was supposed to set statutory caps for defense and non-defense discretionary spending. And ultimately, what they did was Speaker Johnson came in. They set a two-tiered deadline for the discretionary appropriations process. And the first deadline is January 19th. That's when a few of the bills are going to expire. And when I say bills, uh, there are 12 different subcommittees of appropriations in the federal government. And what we're going to have this time is the agriculture bill, the energy and water, and the military construction and veterans administration bills, and then also the transportation and housing urban development programs. Those all expire January 19th. So it's really the first tranche of a real negotiation to figure out what the new spending levels are going to be or whether or not they're going to adhere to these fiscal caps that were enacted with the so-called Fiscal Responsibility Act last June. Then the second deadline is February 2nd. And in February 2nd, you have some of the more controversial subcommittees of appropriations that are going to be handled. 
When you think about where does the Department of Justice get its funding, well, that's through the Commerce Justice Science Subcommittee. You think about the policies that are happening right now at the Pentagon, that happens through the Department of Defense Subcommittee. Then you've got other issues like financial services. What's the SEC doing as it pertains to regulation on uh, digital assets and cryptocurrencies? Then you think about, obviously, the big, big border issue that we've got. 302,000 illegal aliens cross the border in just December. And so that'll be adjudicated through the Homeland Security Subcommittee of Appropriations. This week, Speaker Johnson was down on the border with, I think, about 65 House Republicans calling on the Biden administration to enact tough border security reforms. The House has already passed H.R. 2 many, many months ago at the beginning of 2023. And of course, the Senate has sat on its thumb. Chuck Schumer has no interest in stemming the flow of illegal aliens into America. But the problem is for Joe Biden as he faces re-election is that border security and the illegal immigration flow, these caravans, the videos, the crime, the drugs, the trafficking, all that that's going on on the southern border has become a real political vulnerability for the Biden administration, and they recognize it. So even if they try to come to an agreement, I think, with Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill, they'll have future promises saying, we're going to cut the legal crossings by 90% over the next 20 years, or whatever their pie-in-the-sky promises are going to be. That's the way that Congress typically operates. So I think what we should be watching for are these House Republicans that control one-third of really the lawmaking process when you think about the presidency signing bills into law and the Senate Democrats holding a majority and then the House Republicans holding a majority. All three of them are going to have to come to an agreement to get something signed into law. And so I think that the House Republicans right now hold a lot of leverage. The top-line message from these House Republicans right now is shut down the border or we're going to shut down the federal government when it comes to January 19th and February 2nd. The last thing that I would add about that is Bill Johnson from Ohio. He's taking a a university presidency position, I think, at Youngstown State. And he moved his resignation up from March all the way to January 21st. So that decreases the House Republican majority from two seats down to one. And that means if somebody's sick or somebody has a funeral or we got attendance issues that Democrats could technically issue a motion to vacate and show that there is no speaker in the House of Representatives. Speaking of Ohio, I hear a big Club for Growth endorsement this past week. Yeah, this week, the Club for Growth PAC endorsed Bernie Moreno to be the next Republican senator from the great state of Ohio. This is a very, very competitive race. Last month, President Trump came out with his endorsement for Bernie Moreno. The club has been monitoring this race very, very closely for about the past year. Warren Davidson is a very strong club ally. He took a pass on running. And now the race is between Bernie Moreno, Frank LaRose, and Matt Dolan. And when you have those three candidates, you can line up their records. All of them have a record. And Moreno really has this record of being a strong, pro-growth entrepreneur, somebody that has embraced blockchain technologies, through uh, his investments and also through his business dealings. 
We think he's going to be a phenomenal senator. He's going to defeat Sherrod Brown in 2024 and help flip the U.S. Senate majority for Republicans. Of course, the Buckeye State, always interesting. We have all the U.S. Senate seats, up a third of them this year. And, of course, overlaying all of this, the presidential races will be getting off and running. And we will continue to keep an eye on all of these things as the year unfolds with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. And, Scott, tell us a little bit about the club. Well, Club for Growth is based out of Washington, D.C., and they are united in this idea of economic freedom, liberty, and opportunity. If you want to check out all the other candidates, clubs supporting this cycle, visit clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, we'll check in with you next week. Thank you. Okay, thank you. It is the last weekend of the regular NFL season, and the national debt has grown by over $1 trillion since the season began back in September. Eric Bame of Reason Magazine is here to break down the numbers. Here's how fast the federal government is borrowing piles of money. When the national debt hit $33 trillion in mid-September, the current National Football League season was already two weeks old. Yes, the same season that is going to conclude this weekend had already begun when we hit $33 trillion in debt. And now this week, we've learned from the Treasury Department that we've hit $34 trillion in national debt. America has borrowed $1 trillion in less time than it took to play a football season. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. Uh, It's no secret to anyone, certainly not anyone who listens to this program regularly, that the federal government is borrowing money at a mind-spinning rate. And you know what? You can't blame it on the COVID-19 pandemic anymore because, as we'll get into, a lot of what's happening here has to do with federal spending that isn't the one-time emergency stuff that we dealt with during the pandemic. And you don't have to be a fan of sports to know that football season in America isn't particularly long. We're not even up to the playoffs yet. Teams only play 17 games over the span of 18 weeks. And the final games of the season are scheduled to be played this weekend. Teams still jockeying for playoff position. But that's a few days after the national debt officially surpassed this new threshold, $34 trillion, according to an announcement made Wednesday by the Treasury Department. And looking ahead, the debt is going to continue to skyrocket. In fact, as of right now, the Treasury Department expects to borrow another trillion dollars between now and the end of March. By March Madness, we will have hit $35 trillion in national debt. And this obviously should be a massive warning sign to anyone who cares about the future of the country because the economy is very much at stake here. Indeed, it's it's astounding to me how quickly the federal government has been piling up the debt in recent years. But equally remarkable is how much sooner we've hit some of these thresholds than where we thought we'd be four or five years ago before the COVID-19 pandemic. If you go back and look at the January 2020 Congressional Budget Office report, the, the projections and forecasts that the CBO puts out, it expected that the federal government would indeed eventually have $34 trillion in debt, but that point wouldn't arrive until 2029. That was what the expectations were before the pandemic. Now, since then, the debt has grown, obviously, much faster because of the unprecedented levels of fiscal stimulus that were unleashed during the pandemic and because baseline federal spending has failed to return to pre-pandemic levels over the last year or two. In the fiscal year that ended in September, the federal government spent over $6 trillion, $6.1 trillion, if we're being precise. That's up from $4.4 trillion 
in fiscal year 2019, the last year before the pandemic upended everything. We went from $4.4 trillion to $6.1 trillion, and that's the baseline federal budget number. That doesn't include the emergency one-time pandemic spending. That's just what the government spends year over year. Now, federal revenue, the, the tax money, all of that has gone up as well. We collected about $3.5 trillion in taxes in 2019, and it was $4.4 trillion last year. So that's seen a bit of an increase as well. But those increases clearly have not been large enough to keep up with the surge in new spending. In that same January 2020 CBO report, federal spending was expected to hit about $5.3 trillion by this year. That's where we thought we'd be before the pandemic and before Biden was elected. The federal government is now running over $6 trillion a year, about $800 billion ahead of the pace that we thought we'd be on just four years ago. And so naturally, the budget deficits are bigger because we're spending more money and the national debt is growing at a faster rate. In fact, it's growing at a shockingly fast rate. Just four months, less than four months is all it took to borrow the past trillion dollars. Here's one more way to think about these numbers. Before the pandemic, we'd run trillion-dollar deficits in this country just four times, all of them under Barack Obama and all of them in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis in the late 2000s. We've now run a trillion-dollar deficit in just four months. Now, in some ways, it seemed like 2023 was the start of a political reckoning with the government's addiction to borrowing. In August, Fitch cut the government's credit rating, and Moody's warned in November that it might soon do the same. Against that backdrop, Congress navigated a debt ceiling increase that placed some significant new limits on future discretionary spending. That's despite the fact that it's really mandatory spending on things like Social Security and Medicare that are actually driving the long-term budget problems. But now the debt is going to be probably an even bigger story this year because we've got this nasty feedback loop where higher interest rates are making borrowing more expensive. And that means the federal government will have to borrow more money in the future to afford payments on the money that it already borrowed and spent in the past. The Peterson Foundation estimates that the government spends about $2 billion a day just servicing the cost of existing debt, just paying for the money we already borrowed. And that number, of course, will only go up as the debt continues to increase. Until lawmakers make some serious changes to fiscal policy, expect these announcements to keep coming with greater frequency, at least for a little while. Because according to some economists at the University of Pennsylvania, the United States only has about 20 years left until no amount of future tax increases or spending cuts will be able to avoid a government default on the debt. One of the things that makes professional football, that makes the NFL so compelling to me and to millions of other Americans, is the sense of urgency that comes with each week, with each new game. There are so few games on the schedule, so each one is seemingly the most important of the year. And even a single loss early in the season can have a significant impact on a team's long-term aspirations. So here's what I hope Congress will learn from all of this. I hope Congress will embrace some of that sense of urgency when it comes to the country's fiscal status, because this is a game that no one should want to lose. It's a game that we cannot afford to lose. Congress has to cut spending now before the national debt sacks the American economy. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bam. You can check out more of our coverage of this important topic and everything else going on around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. 
The late U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's rulings in abortion cases that came before the high court proved to be a big disappointment to Ronald Reagan, who made her the first woman justice. We learn more from Dr. Paul Kengor of the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College on this American Radio Journal commentary. Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court, recently died at age 93. Though O'Connor generally was considered a court moderate, she was a decisive swing vote in favor of preserving so-called abortion rights, including the January 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, a judicial abomination with, yes, no basis whatsoever in the U.S. Constitution. Since the announcement of O'Connor's death, I've received emails asking how Ronald Reagan, as a pro-life president, could have appointed O'Connor, given that Reagan wanted pro-life justices on the high court. The answer is that Reagan thought he had a pro-lifer in O'Connor, just as he also thought he had a pro-lifer in Justice Anthony Kennedy, who is a still greater disappointment to Reagan. Kennedy wrote the majority decision in the 1992 Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which preserved an extended row and on which he was joined by O'Connor. The Casey in that decision was Pennsylvania's late great pro-life Democrat governor, Bob Casey Sr. So yes, President Reagan failed terribly on these two of his three Supreme Court picks. For the record, one of Reagan's three picks, Antonin Scalia, turned out to be a superb choice. All of this begs the question, how did Sandra Day O'Connor get by President Reagan and his advisors on the abortion issue? Was she not vetted properly? Did no one ask her the hard questions about where she stood in protecting the unborn child's right to life? The answer was apparently no, they didn't. Unfortunately, this is something that I learned from Reagan's most important advisors, the late William P. Clark. I was Clark's biographer as well as close friend. Moreover, I'm a Reagan biographer, having published eight books on the man. So I know the inside story too well. And I know that Reagan and his closest advisors failed to adequately vet O'Connor and ask her the hard, crucial questions that they needed to ask her. They did not find out where she stood on abortion or Roe v. Wade. And thus, she was free, nominated, and on her way. On September 25, 1981, Sandra Day O'Connor was sworn in as the newest associate justice of the Supreme Court and the first woman on the high court. By and large, a moderate, O'Connor proved not moderate on abortion, where she was a crucial swing vote in ensuring that there would be no limits placed on America's runaway policy of abortion on demand. And that was painfully obvious in that 1992 case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. There, once again, O'Connor teamed up with Anthony Kennedy to ensure yet more decades of row. When Justice Bill Clark read Anthony Kennedy's absurd mystery clause in the Casey ruling, which justified abortion and much more, he was sickened by it. He couldn't believe it. In an infamous statement that was utterly contrary to the thinking of the American founders, not to mention Kennedy's church, biblical and natural law, and frankly, logic itself, Kennedy proclaimed this bold new definition of freedom. Quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, unquote. Think about what that means. That means that every individual can conceive his or her own definition of life, not to mention of marriage, gender, existence, meaning, <laughs> and, well, everything, even meaning. 
That thinking led to many bad decisions by the likes of Kennedy and O'Connor. Because of them, the abortion movement continued to win, at least until June 2022 with the Dobbs decision, when a heroic Justice Samuel Alito and fellow allies committed to life, such as Justices Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, and Clarence Thomas, at last rejected the constitutional abomination that was Roe v. Wade. Those were justices of conviction. Sure, Sandra Day O'Connor made some good decisions in her days on the bench, but her rulings on abortion certainly were not among them. For many of us, she will be remembered less as the first woman on the high court than for her crucial swing vote for abortion, a vote that prolonged Roe and its millions of abortions for decades more to come. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WKCT-AM in Bowling Green, Kentucky, WBWX-FM in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, along with WBUV-FM in Biloxi, Mississippi. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our all-new website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.